Northern Seminary and the Center for Theological Integrity. This is the pastor's table. Today's church leaders are weary and burnt out from trying to lead in the machine of corporate leadership systems. The pastor's table brings you conversations with local pastors working out deep theological convictions in their churches. Here are your hosts, Reverend Tara Beth Leach and Dr. Mark Quanstrom. Welcome to the pastor's table. Uh, I'm Mark Quanstrom. And as we mentioned four weeks ago, the next podcast will be the introduction to uh, my course on seminary now titled Pastoral Ministry Calling and Resilience. And if you're interested in any one of these courses of many, go to seminarynow.com. But for the next three podcasts, we'll be talking about what it means to be a pastor, the call, and how to stay. So being a pastor is just one of the most difficult vocations in the world. I mean, there's a lot of hard jobs, but it really doesn't help us to underestimate the difficulty of the pastoral vocation. The only reason to do it, and in truth, the only way we will be able to continue pastoring is if we are convinced that the Lord has called us to it and that he won't let us go. Those who are able to stay as pastors cite assurance to being called to the vocation as one of the first reasons they are still pastoring. It is their call that keeps them in. They believe they are doing what the Lord wants them to do still. And those who don't stay in the pastorate cite as one of the first reasons they didn't is because they were not sure of their call anymore. Now, in fairness to the Lord, it's not as if he didn't warn us about how difficult it would be. There was no bait and switch on the Lord's part. He was pretty clear as to what it would cost us to follow. And what did Jesus tell his disciples after Peter's confession that Jesus was the Christ? He told them that he was going to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and that he would be killed and on the third day be raised from the dead. Of course, Peter, perhaps sensing the implications for himself, if Jesus' future was a cross, rebuked Jesus. Of course, Peter did. And then Jesus, after rebuking Peter, for Peter rebuking him, said to his disciples, all who want to come after me must say no to themselves, take up their cross and follow me. All who want to save their lives will lose them, but all who lose their lives because of me will find them. And why would people gain the whole world but lose their lives? What will people give in exchange for their lives? Now Luke reported the same exchange between Jesus and the disciples following Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ in Luke 9, but Luke reported Jesus saying it again on another occasion, which story is unique to Luke's gospel. The occasion that Jesus said it again is instructive. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. Turning to them, he said, Whoever comes to me and doesn't hate father and mother, spouse and children, and brothers and sisters, yes, even one's own life cannot be my disciple. Whoever doesn't carry their own cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. If one of you wanted to build a tower, wouldn't you first sit down and calculate the cost to determine whether you have enough money to complete it? Otherwise, when you have laid the foundation but couldn't finish the tower, all who see it will begin to belittle you. They will say, there's the person who began construction and couldn't complete it. 
Or what king would go to war against another king without first sitting down to consider whether his 10,000 soldiers could go up against the 20,000 coming against him? And if he didn't think he could win, he would send a representative to discuss terms of peace while his enemy was a long way off. In the same way, none of you who are unwilling to give up all of your possessions can be my disciple. Now, Jesus mentioned the cost of following him precisely when the crowds were large. That's when he said, don't start following if you can't pay the price, which I have to say was an interesting ecclesial strategy. I mean, I thought the point was large crowds. It's almost as if Jesus wasn't all that interested in the affirmation that a large following might bring him. It's almost as if Jesus was only interested in followers who were all in. Regardless, and back to the point, Jesus was honest about what it would mean to follow him. He warned his followers that following him was going to cost them, and he even told them not to start if they couldn't finish. Now, what's true is in a church conformed to an affluent Western culture, which ethic resembles Epicureanism more than the Christian ethic, in which we are inclined to believe that our comfort is God's primary concern. This idea of carrying or embracing or being nailed to a cross is quite theoretical for us. Yes, we get it. We know those scriptures. Following Jesus in ministry is hard, and he said so himself. But experientially, when it actually does get to feeling like a cross, it still kind of blindsides us. We sometimes don't realize what Jesus was talking about until we're having to actually bear the cross. And this is what I want to say, which I don't know that I've ever heard said, lately anyway. Following Jesus is a martyrdom. Now, it may not be a dramatic martyrdom like Stephen's or James or the Apostle Peter's, but we should not be naive about this either. The call to follow Jesus is a martyrdom, and it isn't any less of a martyrdom if it takes our whole lives for it to be fulfilled. A quick martyrdom or a slow martyrdom is still a martyrdom. And I'm not sure this is something that we in the American Protestant ecclesial culture are told. I'm afraid our models for pastoral leadership have been formed more by the corporate world and perhaps even the entertainment industry than they have been formed by the cross. So pastors are instructed in how to be executives or marketers or producers, directors. I mean, our models for the most part are not the pastors serving in small churches in rural settings or tending to the impoverished on the streets of our inner cities. Our models are those who have achieved some level of notoriety or popularity, position, and status. But we should know more than we know that the call to follow Jesus in ministry and service was a call to martyrdom. And martyrdom wasn't theoretical for those first century followers of Jesus. What was Mary promised? What did Simeon say to her? This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed 
and a sword will pierce your own soul too. What did Jesus promise Peter? A literal cross. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then Jesus said to Peter, follow me. And what did the angel tell Ananias about the apostle Paul? But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. I mean, why isn't that verse on plaques in our offices? And for the record, the apostle Paul suffered according to his own testimony to that church at Corinth. Whatever anyone else dares to boast about, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast about. Are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? So we know what it cost those first century disciples. But again, in a church conformed to an affluent Western culture, which ethic might resemble Epicureanism more than the Christian ethic, in which the corporate world is more formational of the church than the church is the body of Christ. This idea of carrying or embracing or being nailed to a cross, this idea that following Jesus in ministry and service might be a martyrdom is at the least quite theoretical, but is more likely summarily dismissed or rejected. And because of that, when it actually does cost us, it kind of blindsides us. We don't really know what to make of it. But we can't say that Jesus didn't tell us what to expect. He said following him was going to hurt. It was actually going to be painful. But here's the rest of the story, and I think some of you might be wondering if I was ever going to get around to it. The cross is the way of salvation. Living a cruciform life, which the pastorate demands, is salvific. Our call will save us. Now, I don't mean that the cross is salvific in the narrowly and popularly understood substitutionary sense. That is because Jesus suffered, I won't have to. That is not what Jesus ever said. 
No, the cross is the way of salvation as we embrace it ourselves. The cross is sanctifying as we bear it. And I believe that the call to follow Jesus as a pastor is redemptive precisely because it is a cross-bearing vocation, which is why I said the call will be our salvation. So the writer of Hebrews wrote these words, Jesus learned obedience from what he suffered. Now, I don't want to put too much weight on this enigmatic passage, but if it indicates what we think it does, and if obedient suffering is perfecting, as the very next verse stated, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation, then maybe our carrying the cross is perfecting us as well. Maybe martyrdom is sanctifying. So I want to say it again. I believe that the call to follow Jesus in pastoral ministry is redemptive precisely because it is a cross-bearing vocation, which means the call will be our salvation. But I want to go further. I want to say more, and rightly or wrongly, this is what I would tell my students, and this is what I believe. The Lord calls those he calls because he knows it will be the only way they will be saved. Now let that sit with you for just a minute. The Lord calls those he calls because he knows it will be the only way they will be saved. Now that may be a bit of an overstatement, but I believe more often than not, the call for those who are called is necessary for their salvation. So not only will the call to pastoral ministry save us, it is the particular way that the Lord has chosen to save us. He knew that that's what it would take. Now, maybe I'm only projecting. Maybe I'm just confessing the nature of my own discipleship. I mean, I already confess that I am a reluctant disciple. So maybe this is particular to me, that I am a better follower of Jesus because I'm a pastor. And that's just unique to my call. But I don't think so. I've listened to the testimony of too many others who have said the same thing, that the call is what was saving them. The call was God's means by which they were being saved or sanctified, by which they were being formed into Christ-likeness. And if that's the case, it's not that hard to understand. The phenomenon for pastors is similar to what happens to conscientious parents when they have a child. All of a sudden, behaviors that were accommodated when no little ones were present become unacceptable since the behaviors will be mimicked by those little ones. I mean, parents who want to be good parents behave better when children are impacted. I mean, hopefully we're more for our children than we would be for ourselves. So parenting for some parents can be a time of reckoning or at least a time of maturing. In the same way, when one is responsible for parishioners, when people just might follow us as we follow Christ, we who are persons of integrity become more responsible we might even become more devout, more faithful, more prayerful. And it's not that we're disingenuous. It's just that by virtue of being the pastor, we are more aware of the implications of our lives on others. We can no longer live to ourselves alone, which is the reason 
the writer of James, warned against becoming a teacher. He said, my brothers and sisters, not many of you should become teachers because we know that we teachers will be judged more strictly. As pastors, we cannot live to ourselves alone just as we can't when we marry, I mean, if we want a good marriage, and just as we can't when we have children if we want a good family. So what I would tell my students so that they might get the point is that the Lord called me into the pastorate because he knew that he would have to pay me to be a disciple. Again, it's a bit much, and maybe he wouldn't have to pay me that much, but he'd still have to pay me. He knew that he would have to pay me to pray, to study, to preach, to care. Right? That's hyperbole. I do think I would be a Christ follower even if I didn't have a call. But what is true is that I would be following quite differently. For the very practical reason, my life would not be defined by immersion in the church. My vocation would demand a different kind of discipleship. But more importantly, and this is really what I believe is crucial for me to know still, the Lord didn't call me because he needed me or because I have the right gift mix or because I had greater spiritual insight or devotion. In short, because I had so much more to offer than the next person. No, I believe the Lord called me because he knew I needed him to call me. The Lord knew that the call would save me. And I think I have some biblical justification for the idea. It's what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4. In a passage I already referred to, the Apostle Paul wrote of the cost of ministry. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. And then he wrote just a few verses later, therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. And this is the point, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And for that reason, Paul embraced the cross as a matter of fact, he desired to share in the sufferings of Christ so that he might know Christ and so that the Christ might be formed in him. To the churches of Rome, he wrote, we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character and character hope. And to the church at Philippi, Paul confessed, I wanna know Christ Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Pastors, the work of the pastorate is salvific precisely because of the cost. The call to pastor is a call for us to take up our cross and follow Jesus the way of the cross. The call to pastor is a call for us to lose our lives for the Lord's sake and because of the Lord. The call to pastorate is a call to martyrdom. And we should not be surprised when it actually is. But here's the good news. 
that call will save us. In the next session, we will talk even more about the salvific nature of the call.